Good morning. It's warming up now, isn't it? Yeah? Yes, much better. We have an ambitious agenda in front of us this morning. And uh, let me outline that briefly for you, and then we'll have a prayer and get started. Here's what we hope to accomplish. We want to talk about, uh, initially, a, a major question that faces all of you and all of us when we go through difficult times. And that is some form of the question of where was God? Why did God allow this? If God really cares about human beings, then wouldn't he prevent all of these horrible things? If God were powerful enough to carry out his will in the world, would not everything be nice and happy and cheerful and kind and gentle and etc.? So, those questions about God surface. Is there a God in the first place? And if there is a God, does he really care? And if he really cares, is he just not powerful enough to prevent all the tragedies in the world? Those questions that, theolo that theologians call theodicy. Uh, we want to look at those briefly. We want to talk uh, a bit also then about uh, what kinds of things were helpful to us in the aftermath of our losing Shannon, what other people did that was useful as we, as we move then toward talking about hope and coping with the reality that we face in this world. And finally, we want to uh, share some texts that became particularly significant for us uh, as we uh, went on this journey. And I hope that rather than just getting lost in our story, you will be able to think about your own life experiences and in what ways you addressed these questions and these circumstances and what things others did that were most helpful to you and what biblical promises and uh, help from God was most useful to you. And we'll hope to, to save a little time toward the end uh, to do some group sharing of those, of those ideas. Okay? Shall we pray? Lord God, we come today as uh, people full of questions. Stories abound about uh, the difficulties and challenges we face. And we want to find a way through those to maintain confidence in you. And Barbara and I wish this morning that our time together as a group might encourage each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. As Daryl mentioned, all these questions come up when you face difficulties. And at first, I must admit that those questions weren't even entering my mind. Uh, at the very beginning, when we learned of Shannon's death, I just was so consumed uh, with the logistics of everything that that came later for me. When we went back to Maryland for her uh, memorial service, her youth pastor actually was the one that delivered the 
this homily. And one of his big questions was, where was God? And he was very emotionally wrapped up in this, and it, it was very difficult for him to talk about it. And yet I appreciated so much that he addressed that question because people were thinking it. And one of the most helpful things that he talked about was God being with Shannon just like he was with Lazarus. God cried with Mary and Martha and all the mourners, and he knew what he was going to do. He knew Lazarus was going to be resurrected in a few minutes or hours, but he still had that grief. And I picture God grieving with us. I think he grieved with what was going on with Shannon. And I like to picture in my mind God holding my girl because I wasn't there to do that. And it helps me cope, I guess, uh, with that picture in my mind that God was with her through her pain. Um, Maybe he's the one that rendered her unconscious early on so that she wouldn't know what was happening. But I do believe that God was with her and he knows that the next thing, and we know too, the next thing she knows, of course, is seeing her her Lord. And she is at rest and at peace and it's it's only us who are <laughs> left behind that have to pick up the pieces and go on. We're the ones that are, the, are sad over it. And for her, it'll be in an instant. She will have gone to sleep and she'll wake up and, wow, <laughs> how wonderful for her. And in fact, Barbara, you remind me that uh, we have heard, and I'm sure you have too, maybe you've even thought it yourself at times, wouldn't it be nice to be that kind of person for whom the suffering in this world is all over? And the agony, either that we experience ourselves or observe in others, we're oblivious to that. Our, our view of what happens in death is a wonderful comfort, isn't it? Uh, that there's no longer any prolonged encounter with the misery of life. And for some people, that sounds like a great relief. Another text, of course, that we all are so familiar with is in Psalm 23. And one of Shannon's friends um, reminded us of that when she, she actually played her cello at Shannon's memorial service. She's a wonderful cellist and is actually a chair of our music department now at Walla Walla, Karen Thompson. And she um, wrote again, to us that Psalm 23, we will walk through the, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And she said, I, I picture Shannon not fearing while she was going through that experience. And I know for us that we don't need to fear the, the evil of death either. 
doesn't say we won't walk through the valley. I think as a child, I used to think that. <laughs> I thought, boy, this is a wonderful psalm, and somehow the word though didn't stick with me. Uh, and it was sort of like, well, if you walk through this valley, and to me now I understand when you walk through that valley, you will not need to fear because God is with you all the time. Um, my questions were not just experiential ones. They were, uh, they were also intellectual questions. I mentioned yesterday, I think, that both Barbara and I grew up as Adventist Christians, so exposure to Scripture and belief in God was always part of life for us. But most of us at some points in life are faced with the fundamental questions. Is there a God at all? And if God exists, what kind of God is this? And how involved or uninvolved is he in our lives uh, from day to day? My questions about uh, Shannon's experience ran a gamut from one extreme to the other. While absorbed in the tragedy of that, um, I, I didn't frame in words all of those initial questions, but they were uh, kind of haunting me, like a heavy cloud hanging over me. Feeling sorry for ourselves, uh, traumatized because of whatever it was that she may have experienced, uh, feeling the emptiness in our own lives, uh, left me feeling as I mentioned yesterday, speechless and um, ab absorbed in an emotional world. I went for months and didn't want to read anything. D dare I say it? Including the Bible. Words were meaningless to me because uh, what I was feeling inside was so overwhelming that uh, a verbal barrage just didn't address it. So on the one hand, there was that uh, being consumed with the sadness that was there. On the other hand, there were those reminders that our experience was just a tiny little flicker of the agony many others go through. I mentioned our going to the meeting of the uh, parents of murdered children uh, branch in Portland and uh, how as people began to share their stories they talked about the trauma in their families and homes or with children before the time of the break came. Uh, they talked about um, angry, vengeful people whom they suspected were the perpetrators of the disappearance of their child and yet had no uh, no proof of a crime, no discovery of a body. Those kinds of traumas seemed much more difficult for us than what we had gone through because we had the reassurance of Shannon's uh, faithful spiritual life, uh, her hope in something better. We were surrounded by friends and family who were thoughtful and kind to us. Many of those things these other people lacked. 
We got a note from a rabbi friend of, uh, of mine in the Navy. A simple expression of condolences. And I thought to myself, when I read his note, I wonder how many scores of relatives he could list who suffered and died in the Holocaust. And with me, he's grieving about one child. How does that happen? Uh, in uh, 2001, after 9-11, I was in Washington, D.C. on that day, and 10 days later, went to visit our chaplains uh, who were working with the Coast Guard in New York City. And while I was there in New York, they had the big uh, memorial service at Yankee Stadium, which I attended, and uh, I was struck particularly by the comments of a rabbi who spoke at that time. He said, on that day, thousands of per people did not die. One person died thousands of times. And the trauma felt by other mass experiences so dwarfed our own pain that it was even at times a bit embarrassing to me that I should be feeling sorry for myself. So, from the gamut of being consumed and absorbed by grief to feeling guilty. fortunate, yeah, fortunate and guilty for feeling so sad, uh, my feelings ran the whole gamut. But the questions were still there. How do I explain a God whom I don't want to jettison out of my life. I don't want to give up on spiritual faith. I, I um, came many times to a quote that's attributed to Martin Luther who said, many times I've been brought to my knees by the reality that I had nowhere else to turn. So if in those difficult dark times we hang on to God, how do we harmonize what's happening around us with this God who apparently didn't do anything to prevent this kind of horror? It reminds me of verses that introduce the book of Habakkuk. Have you read that little three-chapter book lately? Might be worth a little devotional reading. Habakkuk begins with a complaint. How long, Lord, must I cry for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. How do I cope with a God who apparently is unresponsive to human woe? Well, one way to do that is to say that uh, even though I believe in God and I have confidence in God that we are all, that we all rise from God as our source of life, 
that this is the creator God, the savior God, that in the meantime, between our creation and Jesus' life and the second coming, God must just let things take their natural course. Hmm? That God doesn't supernaturally involve himself in everything. That's one approach. But you're shaking your heads. You don't like that idea, do you? Yeah. And, is the, and that's not the way he is with lots of other people. I hear people tell stories about losing their car keys and praying to God and God helps them find their keys. And I sit and listen to those stories and say, so God helps people find their car keys, but he lets Shannon be stabbed and slashed to death. Is that the kind of God this is? How do I make sense of that conundrum? What is God's will for human life? My pardon? He's with us always. Mm. He says he's really that you possible and that you can be Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So we're having fun with this, aren't we? You see if it's the devil that did it, then no human being needs to take responsibility. And then we deal with, what about Anthony, who held the knife and did the stabbing and the slashing? Should he be held in the prison in Maryland? Or should he, if it was really the devil who's responsible for this, then we ought not take it out on Anthony. Where is mercy and grace in that relationship? I'm going to talk about that a bit tomorrow. <laughs> That's who's the he you're talking about now? Anthony. Anthony chose oh. So, so then we would have to say that that the devil wouldn't be entirely responsible if we're going to hold human beings somehow accountable as well, right? So there must be some shared responsibility here somehow. If it was God's will, if everything that happens to us is God's will in this life, then is it God's will on the one hand that we prosper and be in health? Or is it God's will that some people suffer and are racked with pain and die miserable, horrible deaths? The answers just don't come easily, do they? One approach that I have been very encouraged by and that I, am, I was very grateful when Shannon was killed that I had been exposed to, boy, I've lived a long time, decades before. I guess it was about 20 years before that that I was exposed to this was a little book written by a British pastor during World War II. The, the pastor's name was Leslie Weatherhead, not an Adventist, an Anglican priest, who during World War II was watching his congregation diminish in size week by week because the, the husbands and fathers and sons in that congregation were going off to war and dying and not coming home. In his attempt to struggle with these questions about where God is in the middle of this horrific uh, world war, 
He did a series of sermons, the overall title of which was The Will of God. What is God's will in our contemporary world? He identified three different levels of God's will, which become instructive for me. First of all, he says, there is God's intentional will. will you write, yeah, write that word intentional now. God's intentional will. What did, what did God plan for us in the beginning? Was it God's original intention that there be all of this misery and pain and suffering and death? Absolutely not. God's original plan was that we would live in harmony with him for eternity. Was it not? Yeah. So God's intentional will was very positive. It was a healthy, happy, peaceful environment in which he created human beings. The third type of will that Leslie Weatherhead identified is God's ultimate will. At the end of things, how is it going to conclude? And his point in this little book is that God's ultimate will will be the re-establishment of his intentional will. We believe that, don't we? We can quote the text and we'll remind ourselves of some of those this morning. So, initially, God had a good, perfect plan for us. Ultimately, that initial plan will be reinstated. And we will live peacefully, happily, successfully, without pain or suffering for eternity. In the meantime, God's circumstantial will prevails. And what does God do under the present circumstances? You're already hinting at some of those realities. God not only wishes us to be healthy and prosperous, God wishes us to be able to choose it by ourselves. Let me give you a, a, a crude illustration of that. Barbara and I grew up in homes that uh, expressed appreciation of family members in different ways. I'm embarrassed to say that um, one of the things I was very slow catching on to is how Barbara, quote, told me, end quote, that she loved me. I grew up in a house where if you appreciated something someone did for you or you liked them, you said so. And I longed to hear the words I love you. I appreciate what you did. I'm proud of this or uh, enjoyed that. I wanted the words. In Barbara's house, they didn't talk much about those things. They did things for one another. One of the reasons I uh, always enjoyed being around her family and... Um, enjoyed being around her when we were married, is that she and her mother were both wonderful cooks. In my house, when you were hungry, you had an especially nice meal. In her house, when you had an especially nice meal, 
it carried a whole nother message. And it was ten years into our marriage before I realized that when she made an especially nice meal, it meant, I love you. Isn't that sad? And of course, I didn't tell him that. <laughs> so we expect certain things. We want certain things. I wanted her to do it my way. So when I would say to you, tell me that you love me. If she said, I love you. Did that count? No, because I told her to do that. That's why she was saying it now. I needed her to do it all by herself. God's dilemma with us as human beings is very similar. He could coerce us. He could require us to behave in certain ways. He could prevent us as a human race from doing anything wrong, from being hurtful or spiteful toward other people. He could just stop it. But if he did so, our attachment to him would not be out of choice, would it? It would be because we had to. So if he is going to allow Anthony, in our case, free choice to do with his life as he wishes, then it means he has to allow Anthony the freedom to do that even if it imposes pain and suffering on someone else. You see God's dilemma? So under the present circumstances where God is so committed to human freedom, and yet longing to restore his ultimate will for us, how does he live? What is God's will in the present circumstances? And for me, Weatherhead helps me rationally summarize that by saying that God's choice in the present circumstances is in most cases, I'll come back to this, in most cases to let the natural course of things take their usual consequence, human consequence, but to accompany us on the pain of that journey in the meantime. Not to forsake us as we suffer the consequences of evil, but to walk with us through those dark times in life. I do believe that God does at times supernaturally intervene. I could tell you some miracle stories about my life and about the lives of others with whom I've been connected. How do we explain how God chooses when to intervene and when not to? There's no answer, is there? Hmm. One of the most difficult things for us as Christians to do is to live with unanswered questions. We don't like ambiguity. We want to know the truth and have that a truth apply to everybody else, especially those who disagree with me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there are many things in life and about God for which we do not have good answers. And our challenge is to believe anyway. Hebrews is a wonderful in, introduction to that whole, whole idea. How is it that we believe God is the creator God? By lining up the geological column and explaining all the aberrations in it? 
No, the writer of Hebrews says we believe by faith that God created the world. The sad circumstances in our lives throw us back to that challenge to have faith in God in spite of evidences to the contrary. And our challenge to grow as Christians is to believe even when belief doesn't always make rational sense. To choose to believe as a choice, even in difficult times. Huh? Boy, I'll get carried away here if I talk too much longer, Barbara. So how does God, under the present circumstances, where he has committed himself to allowing human freedom of choice, how does God illustrate to us that he is a caring, concerned God in spite of the misery and suffering that we go through? We believe that one of the ways he does that is through you. Through our behavior and reaching out to one another, we become God's messengers. I'll talk a bit more about that on Friday, but it fits here as well. We become the carriers of God's gifts of comfort to one another. And we experience that in many ways in the weeks and months and continue to do so in the years after uh, our loss of Shannon. It was amazing to me how people just came out of the woodwork and the things they did and said. The, one of the first things I told you yesterday was that there were administrators from the college at our home when we got there after learning of Shannon's death. And soon others arrived too, and the, one of them was the Dean of Women. Shannon had been an RA in the dorm for a couple of years and knew this lady very well, and she and one of her associates came and said, where are your cleaning supplies? We want to clean. We want to dust. We want to clean your bathrooms. And, you know, we had been gone all weekend, so that was a wonderful gesture. I didn't want somebody cleaning my dirt. <laughs> but I took them to the closet, the cleaning closet, and I said, here are the things that I use, and they went to town. A vivid picture I still carry is of our then um, student, well, they called it student affairs. They don't call it that anymore because that didn't sound very good. But <laughs> anyway, the vice president in charge of all the student activities. I picture him out shaking rugs on our front porch. You know, he, he probably wasn't into the cleaning part, but he knew how to shake rugs, and that was a wonderful gesture. Another family came who had lost a son at a very young age, I think he was around 10 or so, who had died of a brain tumor. They knew what loss was of a child. And this, the lady had been Shannon's teacher in grade school. She sat in our living room and just wept. And when we finally kind of got ourselves back under control and they were getting ready to leave, she said, now I want you to go bring me your laundry. Laundry? Ooh, that was way out of my comfort zone to give somebody my dirty laundry. And again, uh, she said, you don't have time and I do. You go get me your laundry. So I dutifully went and got my laundry and gave her the laundry basket. 
And the next day it came back all freshly washed and folded. Things like that I would never have thought to do for someone. And it's not that these people were really, really close personal friends. They were wonderful friends, but we didn't socialize a lot together or anything. It's just that they knew what needed to be done and did it. We were in no condition to think of those things. I know so many times I would always say, if there's anything you need, please call. I couldn't have thought of what I needed. It, it was impossible for at least two or three or four weeks. I was not able to think of that way. So just doing things for people I thought was an, a new insight for me at least on how to be helpful. One morning, a group of cars drove into our driveway. This must have been Tuesday or Wednesday morning now. And I expected the doorbell to start ringing, of course, which it did not. And I thought that was really odd. But we were busy doing other things. And so I didn't give it a whole lot of thought until I heard motors and machinery going. Looked out, and here in we have a... It's kind of a big semicircle between our front porch and garage, and at that time it was just dirt. We had not, we'd only lived in our house a short time. It was not landscaped at all. And this whole group of people were rototilling that dirt, plants galore. Did anybody ask me what my favorite flowers were? No, they just did it. And in the middle of this area, they put a beautiful pink rose bush called Cherish. I mean, how wonderful is that? And all kinds of flowers there. And a, a group of them had just gotten together and did it. <laughs> Didn't ask if it was okay. So those kinds of things were, I thought, especially meaningful. Uh, one of the things I remember was getting ready for the funeral service. And uh, as a professional at this sort of thing, that was an that was an area of life I tried to take some kind of um, control over. Uh, and I remember uh, visiting with the the pastors about who we would have participate and what each one of them would do. And um, I I became infamous at Walla Walla for being sort of compulsive about what happened on the platform on Sabbath morning. So I was blocking out the times and transitions for the funeral service with the pastors. So person X gets up, reads a scripture text. We have music after that. Will the musicians begin moving out onto the platform before the scripture reading finishes, or will they wait until that's over? How long will that gap take, etc., etc.? Huh? Will there be a music stand there, and will it be in the way of those as they enter the this kind of got uh, a little oppressive to some, and Barbara called me aside. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember being asked to do that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the pastors said to me, Barbara, we know how to do this, and we need to minister to you and to Daryl. Can you tell him that we can do this? <laughs> he needs to back off. Yep. It was very difficult for me to let other people take care of me. 
um, because I'd trained myself for decades to do that for other people. And to be on the receiving end was very hard. Uh, a, a memorable moment during the funeral itself came at the conclusion of the ceremony as they were ushering people out of the sanctuary. Uh, a man whom I had known since his um, teenage years, and a- after he finished school, he went off to the service for several years and then came back as a dean at Walla Walla and then took some graduate work after that, came down the row and uh, reached out to me with both hands and took my hands and looked right straight into my eyes and didn't say a word, just uh, held on to me. And it was a good lesson to me that uh, it's what people do, even more than what they say, that was significant to us. We often hear people don't even go around others who have had a loss because I don't know what to say. You don't need to say anything. Just be there. If they want to talk, let them talk. If they want to cry, cry with them. If they do want to sit in silence, sit in silence with them. It's okay just to be there. You remember Job's friends? <laughs> they did fine as long as they kept sh- kept their mouths shut. They shut up, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are and there are some things that it's not helpful to say. Oh, this must be God's will. No, I don't believe it's God's will. Shannon died. Well, uh, some people who have lost lost infants have had people say, "Well, you can have another child," or. It must maybe it wasn't going to be okay anyway, or those kinds of things. That's extremely painful. If you think it, don't say it. <laughs> um, I don't believe any of that, but some people apparently do. One lady came up to me uh, several weeks later. She brought me a little cassette tape of music that she had recorded from her own collection of music. And when she gave it to me, saying that she thought maybe we would find some of these songs helpful, she said, I know just how you feel. My cat got run over once. And, of course, I fortunately kept my mouth shut for once in my life, but I thought to myself, lady, you don't have a clue. However, as I thought about it later, I realized that she had married very late in life, had no children, and her cat was her child. Mm -hmm. So for her, that was experiencing the same kind of loss. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad I didn't say anything to her at the time. I just thanked her for the music, and she didn't stay long. (laughs) I think I would have run out of things to respond to. Mm. But some people... Just don't know when not to say anything, I guess. And so, uh, a word of caution. <laughs> I'm sure you have experienced similar things when people just say things that aren't helpful at all. But remember what you know. Try to think of how they're seeing it and what what their circumstances are. At least it helped me with the lady and her, her cat. I'm wondering if that may trigger some 
things in the, uh, around the losses in your own life that others have done that have been particularly helpful. Might we just field a few comments about that to give ideas to the rest of us of what we might do when a friend or acquaintance um, is going through a period of difficulty? Yes. Always appropriate to say, I care. Hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Please. We've delivered and had frozen casseroles that they could store and cook at their Ah. Deliver food to them. And that's especially helpful to have it be available later. Because at first, we had so much food, we couldn't have possibly eaten it all. But to have non-returnable containers <laughs> and uh, uh, something that can be frozen or Kept for later is wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Somebody else had a hand. Yes? Uh, I, I had a severe depression and, and uh, I was out of the church for a while and a friend brought me a basket and uh, kind of brought me back to life by giving me a basket with all of the ingredient lists and, and it was very helpful to get me interested back in oh. by cooking. And it was very Interesting. A basket full of ingredients to make a meeting. Very interesting. So you had to do something. Got you busy again. Intriguing. Yeah. Good idea. Uh huh. Please. Uh huh. Ah, uh, you'll see her again. As if waiting is not going to be a problem. You just put it off now. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Those those things they sure do happen, but it's not very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It does minimize Please. the pain. My mom had a, had four heart attacks and two strokes. And she And so many instances, and 
There is an advantage to listening to what other people have to say because it pushes them then um, to crystallize, formulate their thoughts, express them in words, and externalize that. So it isn't just something intangible inside, but it becomes tangible outside. So listening is another thing I'd add to the list here. Please. That's a wonderful idea. Could you hear that? Someone took pictures at the reception or a dinner or whatever is afterwards and gave an album to her. So, you know, I confess I don't remember everybody that was at our meal afterwards or even at the service. And the pictures would be very, very helpful. Nice idea, Carl's. Yes. Have a place for people to write remembrances. Good. Carl? That's a great idea. Could you hear? Can you all hear that? Gift certificate to a nursery to purchase a tree. I think living tributes like that are wonderful. And almost every tree and rosebush in our yard right now is in memory of Shannon by somebody. And that's been wonderful. Of course, we didn't quite understand how fast they'd grow. So, <laughs> And that's but, also why Barbara tells me we will never move. That's, that's true. I'm going out of there on a stretcher. <laughs> let's, take, let's take a couple more. Yes. Pictures of the living. So for you uh, and, and your family, having pictures of someone in the coffin was not helpful. Yeah, for some of us, it is helpful. <laughs> so that is tricky. But it's a we good just, idea uh, to check. We just yesterday, um, I looked at some pictures that were posted online by a child of a couple who are 
at the present time separated and going through a divorce. And the pictures were of the family when they were all together. Uh, and I think there's some pain involved in those kinds of pictures for that family right now as well. So uh, your comment's well taken that the pictures need to be discreetly chosen. Yes, please. People in the 21st century don't cope very well with this uh, unseen world, do we? We don't know how to relate to that very well. So it's a good reminder. Thank you. Bud, last one. Uh That's a wonderful gift. So during the time of, of uh, her anticipating death, they got a certificate or paid for her having her hair done so that she could look nice in those last months of life. One of my co-workers has, from the village church <laughs> uh, also uh, took care of a lady as she was dying and went to her home and washed her hair and set it just so she would feel better. Of course, that's before they actually pass away, but it's still a wonderful gesture. Um, People are God's servants and God's messengers. There's no doubt about it. Let us share uh, with you just a few texts. Reminders, they're not new ones for you, but reminders uh, of things you already know. These have been particularly significant to us because they give us hope for the future. We've alluded to that several times. And that anticipatory hope is a wonderful way to help bolster us uh, when we face difficult times. You remember the words that Paul uh, repeated in 1 Thessalonians. Yeah. Yes, 1 Thessalonians 4, Barbara. Jesus comes with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful idea? Never-ending hope. Never-ending hope. One of, the, one of the kinds of services that I enjoy most doing is a funeral for either unbelievers or people whose view of death is different from ours. 
I have started, instead of preaching a homily, just reading Scripture. It says wonderful things all by itself. I don't need to comment. It is a great relief to know that the next thing Shannon knows and those others you grieve and mourn, the next thing they know will be peace and eternal happiness. We have some uh, very good friends. In fact, uh, a couple of uh, Navy funerals that um, Barbara and I have attended and participated in where for them, the thought of that person being now in heaven seems to be of some comfort. I am grateful that Shannon doesn't see the misery that's going on in this world and doesn't have to watch our occasional bouts with discouragement and doubts and questions and unhappiness. Huh? It's a relief the whole notion of them being asleep. And that great getting up morning is going to be a wonderful day. You know, Paul concludes that passage with words uh, that we dare not neglect. So shall they ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the encouragement. This is God's ultimate will which he reinforces at the very moment of our loss, reminds us of what it will be like after all this stuff is over. Yeah. So 1 Thessalonians is one place I like to look. I will remember a sermon preached by a contemporary Adventist speaker at a general conference several sessions ago. But I will never forget the impact of that sermon. It was a sermon based on the book of Revelation, a book that contains some horrific description of human suffering. John the Revelator describes the seven last plagues. But, said this preacher, I have been to the end of the book. And John describes the souls crying out from under the altar. But I have been to the end of the book. He describes the, the miserable failures of the seven churches. But I have been to the end of the book. And in the end of the book, we are reminded of the feast of the Lamb. We are reminded of the restored earth. We're reminded of all those good things if we stick it out to the end of the book. huh? So in spite of the temporary difficulties, let's remind ourselves of what lies ahead. And in fact, Revelation 21 brings that whole idea uh, to focus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, I confess that that phrase is a troublesome phrase for me. I'm the Navy guy, right? I like the ocean. We, we have a member of the Coast Guard here in camp with us this week. 
So at least for the two of us, here's what I remind myself about John saying, there's not going to be any more sea. Do you remember where John was when he was writing this book? The island of Patmos off the coast of Greece. How did he get out there? By boat. How could he get off of there? Yeah, only by boat. And they weren't going to take him off because they intended him to stay there. This was a penal colony where you were isolated from the rest of society. So for him, the sea meant separation from the people he loved. It meant isolation from the ministry that had been so important to him. It was a kind of imprisonment confining him. And those symbols of the sea, I'm, I'm willing to let go of those. <laughs> no more sea. Now, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Boy, I long for that day. Long list of adjectives describing all the miseries. So we hope for something in the future. That, that creates a problem, however, um, because if Christianity is only about ignoring the present and escaping into the fantasy of the future, how does it equip us to live now? Huh? And my God lives with me now, not just in the future. We need to remind ourselves that we have hope not just for then, but for this moment as well. We're going to have to cut things short here. <laughs> uh, we go till 10.45, I think, Barbara. 10.45. Oh, I thought we quit minutes. at 10.30. Uh, so you can slow down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Romans 8 is a favorite, of course, of many of us, especially verse 28. As a child, I remember memorizing this. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And as a child, I thought that meant nothing bad will happen to me because I love him and I think I've been called. So God will work everything out to be good for me. Doesn't say that, does it? <laughs> we have seen wonderfully good things come out of Shannon's death. Not that... It couldn't have happened some other way, but I do believe that there are people who have been touched by her story and her life that didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it before, but now it has meant more to them. And they've examined their own lives, and I, I just am very appreciative of people who have told us about those things. And I also like verse uh, 35, isn't it, Daryl? Mm -hmm. 28, yeah, mm -hmm. 35. Where is it here? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then down to verse 37. No. 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ Jesus our Lord. What wonderful promises to hang on to right now. (laughs) I don't know about you. Uh, Have you ever tried to memorize those verses in Romans? All that whole long list of things that cannot separate us from God. I have trouble, frankly, because there are so many descriptors. It's hard to keep them all in sequence. I admire Barry Black, who is the Senate chaplain now, you know, and an Adventist pastor. Barry rattles that text off as one of his favorites. I often get it mixed up. Paul, I think, was wanting to be extraordinarily thorough and make sure that we knew that absolutely nothing we could ever imagine could separate us from Christ, even in the midst of our trouble. So it's not just hope for the future, it's hope for now. My favorite psalm post-Shannon's death is Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? Look, the wicked bend their bows. They place the arrows in the string to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, that's a pretty sordid description of the world. Everything is in a mess. There is nowhere to run, because even if you head to the hills like was a refuge in David's day, there are people up there hiding behind the tree crumbs ready to get you. It's like a being perpetually paranoid. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Anybody remember the next phrase the psalmist writes? The Lord is in his holy temple. That phrase is used uh, more than once in the Psalms, and every time it portrays a symbol of God safely, perpetually, immovably enthroned in the temple in Jerusalem. God is in the seat of control of the world. In spite of evidences to the contrary, God has not forsaken you. So what do the righteous do when the foundations around them are being destroyed? You remember that God is in his holy temple. Good comfort, huh? God is in his holy temple. Let me uh, finish and then see if you have some comments or questions with a verse from Jesus toward the end of his life recorded by the Apostle John. Conversation about Jesus' true identity. Who are you? Why did I come here? Are you clear as to the mission that I had in being here? And at the end of that conversation, John 16, Jesus says, 
I have told you these things so that you might have peace. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Christians are happy people because, as Barbara says, she grew up believing Romans told her, Christians don't have trouble. I've told you these things so that you might have peace. In this world, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. You'll have trouble here. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Two things in that last phrase stand out to me. One of those is Jesus' appeal for us to rely on him, to make him, as Bud reminded us this morning, preeminent in our lives. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And the other thing that strikes me about Jesus' statement is that he said this before he went to the cross. He believed that his victory was sure before the crucifixion. On the cross itself, Jesus said, you remember, it is finished. Was it finished? Absolutely not. Look at all the suffering you've been going through ever since then. The struggle between good and evil is a long way from being finished yet. In in what way could Jesus say, I have overcome the world? In what way could he say, it's all finished now? Only as he anticipated what he knew was going to happen. He is the example for us of having faith in tough times, of hoping even when there seems to be little reason to hope, of choosing to believe in spite of all the evidences we seem to have that say believing is a bad idea. Take heart. I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble. But I've told you this so that you can have peace. Isn't that our hope? Yeah? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting twist of a phrase, isn't it? He won the war, he says, but the battle still continues. Yeah. It's the defeated foe who has not yet given up. Yeah. Comments? Questions? Please. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> Dug up a cherry tree that was dedicated to her mother. Moved it twice. It still thrives. Very good. Well, we, we've done a similar thing with a rose bush in Shannon's memory. It was given by some friends who were more friends with my parents than with us. And so my folks, we gave it to them to plant in their yard. Well, then my mother passed away and my dad moved. And so he gave us that rose bush and we planted it in one spot and then we moved it to a third spot (laughs) and fortunately it survived yeah it's a very precious gift very very much so oh yes please
Yep. 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 Jesus knows. Way in the back. I'm glad to hear this burden that you have, and I would wish that that burden would become a passion you could share with others, and some ministry may, in fact, grow out of that. Yeah. Um, We're getting close to the end of time. Let's take uh, one, two more, and then we'll tell you a bit about tomorrow. Yes. Yes, good. So here is a congregation in which a grief recovery program began as a result of a man who lost a spouse. Yeah. Please. I have a testimony as far as protection. Last night, I'm diabetic, and last night I was behind the wheel of a car, and we had to run to the grocery store, and I was on my way back here. And I, when you sugar goes low, it's like you're an alcoholic. Right. And the lights confused me, and I missed the turnoff, 
and I was praying, Mom has night blindness, so she can't drive. And I ended up in the ditch and our car, and I was praying. I couldn't figure out where reverse was, and I, could, I was completely confused. And I was trying not to fall apart. And praise the Lord, not one minute passed when the van stopped just in front of us. I couldn't even figure out how to put the trouble lights on. I was completely confused. And it was like the fog was closing in around my mind. And um, my brother was there, and the guy that had been had ran him up to the market to get some ice had gone, and he must have been not a minute behind us in the van. And he pulled up and was like, what are you doing in the ditch here? And he was able to get in the car and, and drive us home. Great. We need the Lord. Tomorrow, I'm going to talk about a way in which the Lord intervened in my own life. Um, particularly in relationship to Anthony, who pleaded guilty to killing Shannon. Um, I'm by heritage an Irishman. Have you heard about the Irish toast? Here's to your enemies, enemies. <laughs> so my coping with Anthony uh, has been a bit of a journey. And I'll share that in the morning. It's a miracle story for me. And Barbara, you're going to talk about your own reaction. Oh, yes. Afterwards. What? I forgot. <laughs> Actually, I do have something prepared. <laughs> but, yeah, the way that I coped with the forgiveness issue. Yeah. So we'll get back to um, elaborating uh, and nudging a bit and trying to cope with what Carl preached to us last night about. Mm. Is justice what that man needs in Maryland? Is it mercy? Is it grace? How do we put all that together uh, in the realities of a wicked, nasty world? Yeah. So we'll see you in the morning. Yes.